from John chapter 8. Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Amen. Well, as you know, we've been continuing uh, through a series on the news media, primarily taken from Revelation, uh, chapters 12 through 14. I want to take this week and probably just next week, and we'll conclude our, our, uh, our series. Revelation 12 through 14 portrays a deeper conflict, a hidden conflict, a war between life represented as a woman, as the people of God, a woman who is, is actually in the midst of childbirth, in the midst of travail. She is a woman who is a source of life, a source of, of truth, a source of light, and a source of life, a source of light in the sense of truth, speaking truth in a world of darkness and deception, but also a source of life, giving her life at great cost, producing, bringing forth life. It is a beautiful picture of the people of God, a beautiful picture of how God's people are supposed to be in the world. And that symbol is a symbol of maternal love, of costly maternal love. And as one side of that war, this woman is, is speaking light, or speaking truth, speaking, uh, emitting light and giving life at great cost. And on the other side is, is not life, but lies. Lies represented by a dragon. A dragon being a reptile, being like a serpent, slithering and never knowing which way they're going, never knowing, really having any idea of what really is their direction, what really their true purposes and intent are. So again, Revelation portrays that underneath the conflicts of our world, underneath the uh, political conflicts, the racial conflicts, underneath the interpersonal marital conflicts is something deeper, something hidden, something more sinister. Again, a war between all who who would seek to promote life, to be a source of life, a source of light, and all who would be, seek to be a source of lies. A woman versus a dragon. A dragon seeking to devour the, the child that the woman is bringing forth. A child who is, is going to bring, bring in or usher in a new era. An era of peace. A reign of, of life. Of course, that child being the Lord Jesus Christ, pictured here in Revelation as both a lamb and a lion. It is a war won ultimately by the blood of the lamb. By death, the lamb brings life. It is a war in which the dragon, defeated by the blood of the lamb, although defeated, is still about the business of deceiving we read that in at the, in at the rest of chapter 12 and into chapter 13, we get a picture of how the, this dragon is going about waging its war of deception upon all who stand for life, all who stand for peace and for flourishing. Listen, my hope, my hope for us, my prayer for us as a church is that these images become impressed on your hearts and minds think of that. When you think of the church, you think of a woman in travail. You think of a love of your mother, the love of a parent. Of course, in the Clark household, last two and a half months, we've had uh, had a new arrival, little Harrison. And I tell you, Harrison is now about two and a half months old. And he can't talk. He can't even roll over yet. And I'll tell you for sure that Harrison knows that his mama loves him. 
Whenever he'll be lying there on his back like this, kind of staring at the, at, the, at the ceiling, and Sarah will walk by, and immediately he just lights up and gets excited. He knows, he knows. There's nothing more powerful than maternal love, and that is to be the picture of the church, of a mother, not only in travail, but also uh, bear, uh, what's the word, a bearing or, or um, rearing that child through its, uh, through its uh, young years, protecting it, providing for it. It's a beautiful picture. So in this next scene, again in chapter 13, in this, this uh, very um, um, visual, this very sensory uh, sort of description of, of this deeper conflict, the next scene, if you will, is how the dragon deceives. And we saw the last two weeks how these symbols that he describes are the picture of how the evil one hijacks institutions of government and, as we'll see today, institutions of media, of mass media. Now, remember, this is important. A hijacking, a hijacking is that which takes, by force, something that is good and uses it for evil. An airliner is obviously is essentially just a flying bus. But on 9-11, what was, it was, uh, this, this flying bus became what? A fiery bullet that took life. So again, a hijacking, this is very important. I want you to hear this. The dragon is taking something good, something God created, government, media, narrative, story, pictures, images. These are all things that God created, and he's using them, he's hijacking them for evil to carry out a campaign of lies. Okay, so again, I want to make this qualification. I made it several weeks ago, but I want to make it again. Revelation isn't vilifying the institutions of government. It's not vilifying the mass media. It's the, and it's, it's especially not vilifying specific persons within it. Never would Revelation say, oh, you know, this president or that president or this politician or this uh, Hollywood person, the, oh, they're, they're, they're the beast. They're, 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 the, they're the devil. It wouldn't do that. It's saying, what it's saying, what Revelation is saying so importantly is that these institutions can be and regularly are hijacked to promote an agenda of deception in a war against all who promote life, who promote peace. All who would seek to live their lives like the Lamb. Okay, so the past two weeks, we looked at how the evil one hijacks political power. And this week, we're going to look at the media, at mass media, okay? John portrays each of these two institutions, when hijacked, as beasts, as wild animals, as predatorial creatures. The first beast shows how the dragon hijacks, again, the might of princes. And the second one, as we'll see, shows how he hijacks the imagination of the people. So I'm going to read this, and I'm going to, and we'll, I'm going to read this, give a, an introduction to how the, the basic message of what's being said, then go into some of the details. So let's read this now. This is Revelation chapter 13, beginning in verse 11. Hear now the word of the Lord. Then, says John, then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb. But it spoke like a dragon. Hmm. It exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf, and it made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose fatal wound had been healed. 
And it performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to the earth in full view of the people. Because of the signs, it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast. I'm sorry, because of the signs it was given, it was given power to perform on, on behalf of the first beast. It deceived the inhabitants of the earth. It ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. The second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that the, the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast of, or the number of its name. And then John exhorts us, this calls for wisdom. Let the person who, can, who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of man. That number is 666. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, with the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts, be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So this, uh, this, uh, this, uh, this imagery is overwhelming, isn't it? Let me just begin with a general, um, a general introduction here. How many of you kids have a favorite movie? Do you have a favorite movie like to watch? When I was a kid, one of my favorite movies, this is, this is, a, this is a relatively, this is about 100 years ago when I was a kid. And um, the movie came out, in fact, I remember going to the theater. We didn't go to the theater often. This was a really big deal. But the name of the movie, it was a film called Top Gun. And uh, I grew up in a family that my older brother, his older brother is six years older than I am, and he always wanted to fly, wanted to be a pilot. In fact, we had a bunk bed together. I was in the lower bunk. And our room was plastered with aircraft, military aircraft, all kinds of aircraft, commercial aircraft, all these posters. And my brother would spend time uh, making models of, of all kinds of airplanes. And, and I, so I remember with great anticipation, he and I, my family, going to see this movie. And what made, one of the things that made the movie so incredible, like all the, the, the reviews and people would talk about, is that they had actually used real footage. In fact, the, the, you know, Jerry Bruckheimer and the, the, the producers and directors, they had worked directly with the U.S. Navy to, create, to actually um, film real footage so that it had a reality to it. It, it had this sense that, hey, oh my goodness, like, like this is the real thing, that what you weren't watching, this wasn't Hollywood, this was real. And of course, unbelievably, it's, it's, that, was, that was 1986, right? Now this is 2020, um, 34 years later, or 100 years later, like I said, right? The sequel, the sequel is about to be released. I'm sure you've seen this, right? Top Gun Maverick is about to come out. And what, again, as I mentioned, the original film bragged that it had coordinated with the U.S. Navy to get all this footage, etc. And, and, and you have this incredible realism throughout the movie. And, and what's important is in the movie, when the camera flashes from seeing these airplanes going around, you know, going all over the place and, and, and dogfighting, it, when the camera flashes from that to a scene within the cockpit, so you can see Maverick, you can see Goose or whoever, right? You can, you're in the cockpit. We think, wow, these actors are actually flying. But are they? Well, well, no, they, they actually they, they weren't flying, but it wasn't for a lack of trying. In fact, Jerry Bruckheimer, who produced both movies, he said in a recent interview 
that in the original film, they actually put actors in the F-14 Tomcats. And they put them in the air to film the various scenes. But guess what happened? It didn't work at all. Bruckheimer explains, he says, in the original film, quote, we put actors in the F-14s and we couldn't use one frame of it because they all what? They all threw up. <laughs> he said, it's hysterical to see their eyes roll back into their heads. <laughs> no, but of course, in the sequel, apparently that's all changed. In fact, apparently Tom Cruise actually took some of his own money and paid for the actors to go to flight school to help them learn how to resist the Gs so they could actually take the shots in, you know, in, in the air in, in, in real time. The point here is that film is one medium that gives us not reality, but a claim to reality. That's what film does. It claims to give us a picture of, or an accurate representation of how things really are. This is for real. And it's a medium, it's a, it's a means by which reality can be depicted. And film, like pictures, books, music, etc., makes claims about the world and how it works and what it's like. And each medium, when considered together, each means of communicating that, when considered together, each medium is called what? The media, the plural of medium. And in the first century world of Revelation, this word medium can be roughly captured by the Greek word akon, the word that comes to us as icon. But akon is usually translated as an image. And we're seeing in Revelation 13 the central idea of how through this second beast, what is erected is an image. It is an image, and this image, as we'll see, is, 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 is precisely there to promote the idea that political power is the answer to our problems. The second beast presents this notion of non-political power of institutions in our culture that seek to create images, ways of seeing the world that are in the service of an idea that political power is the means to peace. It is the means to healing. It is the means to reconciliation. It is the means to human flourishing. That's the bottom line. See, an image aims to help its viewers to imagine a reality that they can't directly see. I can't see it for myself. And so I can watch on the news what really happened. I wasn't there. But I can see what happened because I have images presented to me of what was there. Again, so an image aims to help its viewers, whoever's seeing it, to imagine, that's the idea of imagine, to, 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 to have an image in your mind, to imagine in your mind a reality that we can't see directly. So think about this. Go back to Top Gun here. As a young kid, how did I imagine what being a fighter pilot would be like? Top Gun. Now, is that realistic? Is that anywhere near what being an Air Force or Naval aviator is like? Well, ask a Naval aviator. Ask a, ask a pilot sometime if Top Gun represents anything like what it's like to be a pilot. I have a number of friends of mine. I was, I was in the Air Force. I, was in there. I, was, I, was, I, I did not fly. I was part of what's called the Chair Force. And uh, I, I flew a desk, as I like to tell people. Um, they will not make a movie of me, by the way. I, 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 you know, several times Bruckheimer's come to me, and I'm always like, no, 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 whatever. So I can give you stories, and they're all very realistic, and they're all very boring. 
But I have friends, a lot of my classmates did go into, uh, to, into flying, F- F-15s, F-16s. And it's amazing to hear the descriptions of what it's like to fly. It's actually very different from what Hollywood would, not surprisingly, from what Hollywood would say. Now, now, let me, now let me kind of go from the sort of the silly and the, 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 the comical to something that is actually very relevant and actually quite controversial. So here's my question this morning. As a young kid, I imagined what it, what it would be like being a fighter pilot. The images I had in my mind were from Top Gun. Now, let, let me ask this. If you are a young Afro-American male today, how would you imagine what cops are like, given their portrayal in pop culture and in mass media, especially the news media? When, you, when, you have, when you're about to have your first encounter as an Afro-American, as a young Afro-American male with law enforcement, you're about to have that first encounter with them, you pulled over or whatever it might be, what will you know about cops from the news? What images will you have been given? As, a young, as, an, as an Afro-American, a young Afro-American man, will you know what Afro-American professor Randall Kennedy He's a Rhodes Scholar and a Harvard Law Professor, who, by the way, is no conservative. This isn't about politics. It's not about left or right. It's about a law professor at Harvard saying, who is an expert in the area of law enforcement, how he himself states, I quoted this last last week, I'm going to quote it again. He says, quote, blacks have suffered more from being left unprotected or underprotected by law enforcement authorities than from being mistreated as suspects or defendants. Although, he continues, although it is allegations of the latter that now typically receive the most attention. He's saying it's always the police brutality that gets all the news, but the reality is the, re- the real image should be of a, an under-resourced minority community not having where there's no cops. No one's on the beat. No one's defending. They're, they're left. They're left to defend for themselves. See, this young, Amer- this young Afro-American male doesn't know what, Amer- what Afro-American professor Glenn Lowry, the first, he's the first black professor of economics to receive tenure at Harvard University. This is what he said over and over again on a podcast just three days after the tragic death of George Floyd. He said, this period, this time that we're living in right now, with Twitter and the cell phone and the instantaneous social media mediated centering of the national attention around George, George Floyd's tragic death. This time is when things grow up and they become larger than life and they become emblematic of what's going on in the country. A single image, a single video, a cell phone video determining what is at the center of our attention. And he says, what's so tragic is that image, that video becomes emblematic. So interesting. He needs to quote him. He says here, he says, they become emblematic to our children of what it means to be black. And he laments. He says, I think it's completely wrong. I th- and he says, I think that black people in poor cities need the cops. They need the cops. They need public safety. They need security. The main threat to the quality of their life is not being preyed upon by cops. It's being victimized by other black people. And that's just a fact. Can we keep this thing in proportion here? And he goes on to talk about his concerns, real concerns that really are real with law enforcement. There really are issues there. No one's saying that. But then he says, but this is a quote. He says, the tail is wagging the dog. 
cultivating in our people a sense of, in our people, but in our black communities, cultivating in our people a sense of distrust and contempt for the cops is self-destructive. You don't have to agree with this professor of economics. You don't have to agree with him. But you have to like, at least give him a hearing. And he's saying the image, the social media mediated centering of our national intention through these images. He says it's just wrong. It's completely wrong-headed. It's misleading. I could give you, I could give you, I'm going to go on about four or five more quotes from leading Afro-Americans in, in, uh, in, in higher education in different, uh, different industries who are saying a similar sort of thing. My point here is that mass media and the news media can be hijacked in a way that leads to an agenda of deception that is dark, behind which there is an evil one who, does, who wants to do one thing, divide, polarize. He doesn't just want to divide our culture, he wants to divide the church. The focus here is on how the evil one uses institutions of political power and, and, and media to divide and defeat the church. And I just, I want to say this as, as emphatically as I can. In the Bible, as I mentioned in my email to all of you last week, in the Bible, issues of justice are first order issues. God cares deeply. He cares deeply about justice in our world. He cares about matters of race and of discrimination, of bigotry, of sexism. He cares deeply about issues of justice. Those are first-order issues to him. But the Bible also makes clear that the instrument of political power is at best a third-order instrument. That is to say, it is an instrument by, by which very little human flourishing and life and peace are enabled. Overwhelmingly in John, political policy, political governance are portrayed as a predatorial animal. They are no friend to human flourishing in general. And my point with that is that you and I as Christians, we may disagree on political matters. Our church, I hope, I, I truly hope and pray that our church has a full spectrum of political views in it. I, I'd be terrible if all we were was liberal, all we were were conservative. I want persons who are coming in from all different perspectives, all different walks of life, learning to follow Jesus. And they may arrive at their political views that are more in line with Jesus later on, five years from now, ten years from now. That's okay. And we can, but we need each other to listen. The point is this, that you and I may disagree on matters of political policy and still dine and eat and laugh and fellowship together. Why? Because those are third-order issues. The way that there's going to be peace, the way that there's going to be reconciliation, the way that there's going to be human flourishing in America is through the church of Jesus Christ through loving our neighbor at great cost, through the church of Jesus Christ being, exercising that maternal love, that love at great cost. Not through some law, not through some policy, not through some act of our law enforcement. The, first, the, the fact of the matter is the first three centuries of the church's life, 
It had no political influence whatsoever. It was being fed to the lions. Okay? And it flourished. It flourished. It brought peace and reconciliation throughout the empire. And it's a message that, boy, that the church wants to send to persons who are oppressed right now, regardless of their sex, regardless of their race, whatever it may be. The church is here to say, listen, let's, let's paint as a terrible picture of law enforcement as possible. Let's vilify them as much. Let's assume the worst of law enforcement. Let's assume the worst of our criminal justice system. What if you rose above and loved your enemies? What if when that cop pulls you over, you showed nothing but love? You killed them with kindness. You were empowered because no one can stop you from loving others. No one can stop you from praying for those who persecute you. No one can stop you from rising to the level of nobility and dignity and, and, and just an overflowing of love and respect so that on that body cam they see someone who is just unbelievable, someone who's not equal to whites, someone who's way above whites, someone who's not equal to cops, someone who is higher, more dignified, more noble than cops. That's what the message of the Church of Jesus Christ is to be. And let's say we vilify cops as the worst possible. What are we going to do? Shun them? Twitter storm? Just destroy them? No, you invite them in your home. Make a hot meal for them. Listen to them. Hear them out. Talk to them. Show the love that Jesus Christ had for them. See, here in, here in John 13, we have a picture of an institution. Let's kind of walk through the details. I won't take too much time but I want to walk through some of these details with you because I think it's a truly a beautiful, it's a, it's a, it's a, very, um, uh, uh, it's a very vivid portrait of, of, of what is going on in, institu- in institutions outside of the government. So the bottom line this morning, again, is that the evil one, the dragon, loves to hijack institutions of our culture to promote to promote, a, to promote political power as absolute, as godlike, as unparalleled. What, what article, I don't care if it's from CNN or Fox News, isn't insisting that President Trump must do this or he shouldn't do that or a, di- a different president, a different candidate. We must have this or else the sky is going to fall. This must happen in the Oval Office for, for us all to be okay so we all don't die. See, in John's day, pop culture would 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 have been the local temple cults, the local shrines, the local businesses. And in those shrines and temples were priests, priests who, in exchange for political favor, would promote allegiance to and even worship of the Roman emperor via the use of images. Right? The priests would say, you know what? I'm going to curry favor with the empire, with the, with the government, by erecting an image of Caesar. And, that, and, and encouraging, I remember when all my people come in, the faithful come in on, on whatever day they came in on, and say, hey, let's, in addition to making sacrifices to this god or goddess, let's also make some sacrifices to the emperor. And, by, and that in so doing, they would gain favor from, 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 the, from Caesar, from the emperor, and they would also, and in turn, they would promote this and say, "Look, we all really need to be understanding how this, how Caesar is our father. 
that he loves us, that he has what's best for us. And if we know what's best for us, we'll do exactly what he says. Now, in our day, that pop culture looks different, of course. It looks like all the images and messages transmitted through mass media. It include, I would include it, institutions of higher learning, of higher education, like universities and colleges. But this morning, again, our focus has been primarily on mass media, on the, especially on media, news media and social media. So how does he wage war? Let's look briefly, let me look at a few of these points here. I won't take long at all. He wages war first by hijacking pop culture, by, by, by focusing on what is popular and passing. Look at the first half of verse 11. He says, then I saw a second beast coming out of where? The earth, the soil, land. Well, what does he mean by this notion of earth and land? Well, whereas the first beast comes from the sea, and in the last, week, or the last couple of weeks we saw that the sea represents what is foreign, what is chaotic, what is the forces at play that are, that, are, that are impersonal, unknown to us, things like a virus, right? Things like things, uh, uh, plagues, things like all manner of natural disasters. This beast comes from where? The earth. And in the Old Testament, uh, symbolism represents what is familiar and common. It represents what is popular and passing. Again, as discussed three weeks ago, the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, the earth is a symbol of that which is familiar and frail. The first human is made of what? The dust of the earth. That is to say, he's made of that which is inanimate, as lifeless, dependent. Psalm 103 says that God has compassion on his people. Why? Because, quote, he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are made of dust. The earth not only symbolizes this idea of what's passing, what's frail, it symbolizes what is familiar, what is popular, what is of the people. See, it's the soil, that's, that's our place, that's where we live. That's where, it's our place that, at least in part, that's what identifies us as persons. Jesus was Jesus of Nazareth. So those born on U.S. soil are Americans. Soil has to do with place, with people, with that which is familiar. So what the first beast presents, represents the hijacking of power, the power of princes and politicians. The second represents the hijacking of the power of the people, of pop culture, of the press, of popular opinion and peer pressure. So again, how does the dragon wage his war of deception? Well, first, by using or hijacking what's, you know, pop culture. Okay, but what does he, what does he do after that? Listen to what's next here. I think this is just such a, such a, such a powerful thing. He speaks here, the second beast is not only, not only does the, does the evil one wage war through the idea of... Um, Pop culture. Let me. Let me. Sorry. Let me get, get, find my place here in my notes. Oh, I'm sorry. Just give me one second here. Oh. There we go. Okay. So not not only does he use the, 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 the means of pop culture, he uses pop culture to package political power to make it look like it's on par with God. We see this, we see this in verses 13, uh, in verses 13, 14, and 15. It's so amazing. He says here, verses 13, he says, um, this, this second beast exercised all the authority of the first beast. That is to say, he, he, he was able to take the, 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 the power of the first beast and use it in a way that extends its power. Again, so often the press, so often um, the institutions of higher learning are these, these legitimizers of political power. 
Verse 13, and it performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to the earth in full view of people. So often the, the press seeks to convince people that, that, that uh, government has the power to do the miraculous, has the power to make us think that somehow if we just pass the right policies, all the ills of our world will be healed. And in response, verse 14, because of the signs that was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast, it deceived the inhabitants of the earth. People actually believed, you know what? You're right, political power is the answer. Political power, the right policies will fix everything. In order, and it ordered them to, to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the, the sword and yet lived. Of course, in the, in the first century context, this would have been a priest going to a local wealthy person saying, look, can you commission uh, the, 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 the formation, the direction, the creation of an image of the, empire, of the emperor? That way we can set it up there. And so they convince the locals to create an image in such a way that promotes the power and the, the, the purity, the rightness, so to speak, of, of, the, of political authority. Verse 15, the second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. So again, it's this idea that the local priesthood, what are they doing? They're seeking to show that this image has such such magical power, such, um, such a life to it, that in, if you don't recognize it, if you don't hail it, if you don't hail political power as the means of peace, you need to be killed, you need to be persecuted, you need to be excluded and rejected. Verse 16, it also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or their foreheads in the ancient world to show your devotion, to show your allegiance publicly. Often there was a mark put on either your wrist or your head. In fact, if you were a slave, if you were a servant, especially of, of, a, of a great, uh, some well-known figure, often to show whose master you were, a, a, a print or a mark was placed on your head. So that wherever you went, you're in the marketplace, people knew whose you, who's you, who's you were, so to speak, by the simple mark on your head. And here is this idea of, the, a very simple idea of if you really believe that, that Caesar is emperor, if you believe that he is the source of all peace, of all life, then you will put this mark on your forehead or all your right hand. And if you don't, we're gonna, there's actually going to be economic and political, social outfall for that. And then in verse 17, we, we receive the, we, we, he gives us what, what he might call the, the mark that's put on there in, the 18, in chapter verse 18. It speaks of the name or the, the nature of that mark or the number. It is the number 666. And as I've explained before, very simply, 666 is simply one short of seven. It's a triune way of communicating that which is just, just short of seven. Seven is the number of completion. It's the number of wholeness. It's the number of truth. In, 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 in the Old Testament, the number seven is the whole notion of a seven-day week. It's the notion of completeness. And that which is six, the number six then, stands for that which is just short of the truth leaving out some crucial bits that distort and pervert. So number six is, the number six is a symbolic of, of that which is counterfeit, that which is, is, that which is uh, actually a deception, actually that which is false. 
And so it's speaking here of those who have an allegiance to, to the government, to political powers ultimate, are those who have bought into a lie, whose lives are marked by what is false, what is deceptive. So Christian, let me ask you, let me make some very simple applications here. Are you someone who is a seeker of the truth? Are you someone who actually seeks to, to, to look for what is true, starting, beginning with the word of God? Do you, who do you believe really is in control? Is it President Trump? Is it Joe Biden? Is it CNN? Is it Fox News? Is it Google? Who really is in control? Who really has come to life? Who really has the power over death? Who has the power to save us? Is it Dr. Fauci? And then I'm not, not, there's no disrespect to the CDC, no disrespect to our public health leaders, but they are not the sources of life. Who is the source of real counsel, of life-giving counsel that leads to peace? Is it really Oprah? Is it Dr. Phil? Is it Rush Limbaugh? Is it, and you name it. I'm getting, I'm, I'm no offense to those persons. They have their place. They have their roles. At the same time, when they claim an ultimacy, a finality, a, an, an authority capital A, it simply is of the evil one. Verse 18, this calls for wisdom, that the person who has insight calculate the number. This calls for prudence. It calls for you and I to discern between not one and seven, that's easy, between six and seven, between that which is a counterfeit bill and a real bill. It calls us to discern, to, in a world of mass media where everything is deception, everything is twisted, everything is spun, it calls for you and me to pursue truth. And let me just give you very simply three different criteria for how to discern truth when reading the news. The first is that there's caution. Do you, do you sense caution in the article that you're reading? Is there a sense that, you know what, I could be wrong? A sense that, well, here, the, here some authorities are saying this, but others are saying this. There's caution. It's careful. There's humility. It's not this absolute, we know this is obvious. There's caution. Second, there's qualification. There's qualification. This is true at these times and these places. This is true here in these circumstances. There's qualification. It applies here, here, and here, but not here. So first there's caution, there's qualification. Third, there's context. There's context. This is, this is how and when this is happening. Here's the history behind this. Here's, here's the backstory to all of this. There's context. Let me give you an example here. Let me give you a, one quote. COVID-19 is a deadly virus. Unqualified, without caution, without conduct. COVID-19 is a deadly virus. Compare that now to the statement, at present, most epidemiologists suggest that COVID-19 can be deadly, though overwhelmingly for older elderly persons with pre-existing complications, such as those living in nursing homes. You see the difference? See, one says, one's, one's actually cautious. Most epidemiologists, so there are actually those who disagree. At present, so at the time, right now our best reading you know, suggests this, things could change. So there's caution. Then there's qualification. 
COVID-19 can be deadly, though overwhelmingly for elderly persons, though overwhelmingly with elderly persons with pre-existing conditions or uh, complications. Those contexts, such as those living in nursing homes. Do you see that? There's truth can be identified by caution, by qualification, and by context. Very simple. Let me just conclude with this. Jesus, in contrast to the authorities of our day, who must speak always with that caution, with that qualification and context. If you've, if you've ever witnessed a great like authorities, like, like, like phenomenal professors lecture, they do, so their lectures are usually boring. You know why? Because they're so cautious. They're so careful. They're so qualified. They're so contextualized. But you know what? Jesus was never that way. With him, there was no caution. <laughs> well, I think maybe that, right? There's no qualification. Well, I'm not sure about that over there. Jesus spoke, says Matthew, as one who had authority. The crowds were amazed. See, when teaching about some of the most important, intricate, and intimate issues of life, Jesus speaks as someone who is in the know, as someone who has an unprecedented access to reality, someone who actually knows how the world really works. It's incredible. He speaks as an expert, as one who has the right to speak on every issue. Like, who is this guy? And incredibly, there's no hesitation. There's no uncertainty in his words. New Testament scholar John Winnems writes this, the greatest human teacher is humbly conscious of their own fallibility, their own ignorance. At times, his statements are tentative. His predictions are always cautious. And if he is really great, he will at times confess his errors. But with Jesus, there is no trace of this. His statements are never tentative. His predictions are made with unqualified confidence. There is no sign of the slightest confession of error in anything he taught. Jesus declared, heaven and earth will pass away. But my words will never pass away. Who talks like that? It's amazing. You and I worship one who in every way is the truth, the way, and the life. Let me close with this. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is neither an elephant or a donkey. He is, listen to this, he, is, he was slain like a lamb so that he might reign like a lion. And he speaks truth. He is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth.